Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts, shall we, before we uh, break the bread of God's word together. Father, we thank you for the privilege once again that we have of being able to meet together in freedom and to study your word. Father, what greater pursuit of our anything could there be other than studying to learn more of you? Lord, and as we read your word, Father, we know that you reveal yourself to us. And Father, we're in different places this morning, different places in our lives physically, but Lord, also different places in our lives spiritually. And Father, if we need just a word of encouragement this morning, Lord, I pray that through your spirit you give us that word. Lord, if we need chastening, then Lord, chasten us, we pray. Father, if we need direction this morning, Lord, give us a clear leading. Father, we acknowledge that wherever we are, Lord, you're more than able to provide and deal with every situation, to give us all that we need, to provide exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so, Father, as we turn to your word now, Lord, just open it to us. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to your word. And let us grow, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have come as far in our journey through the Bible as the book of Joshua. And we're going to spend this morning just going through looking at this incredible account we have in God's Word. You know, I've maybe mentioned this before, I'm not a big fan of the phrase, the stories in the Old Testament. Because sometimes we hear people talk about the stories, and you know, there's almost that kind of suggestion that they're mythological, these aren't real events, they're just stories. They're not, these are factual accounts of things that actually took place. Real people, real places. I think we need to just make sure we always keep that in our minds. So, the book of Joshua. Joshua obviously follows on leading the nation, had been anointed, we saw at the end of Deuteronomy, by Moses. It's a historical book, as I just mentioned. It's a continuation, really, of that which we've seen going through the Torah. And it introduces Israel to the land. And if you like, it's the bridge between the birth of the nation and their subsequent history. And we see the effects reverberate of that, even to this day. It's also a practical book. It's an instruction manual, if you like, for spiritual warfare. I was speaking to um, my dad, who's pastor of a church back in Deal, and we happen to know another pastor in another church who uh, makes the claim that he's a New Testament Christian. He doesn't see any value in the Old Testament. That that was the Old Testament. And now we have the New Testament. And it's, no, this is one book. And as Paul reminds us on a number of occasions, everything that was written aforetime is there for our learning. It's so that we don't make the same mistakes, but also so that we can learn from these experiences as we see them echoed in our own life. Really, this book deals very much with training the church to be overcomers. So we need to see it not as just a historical account, but as a training manual for us as well. Deuteronomy, if you like, gives us the why of obedience. Why should we be obedient? But Joshua gives us the how. To use the phrase of Alan Redpath, this book is about victorious Christian living. You know, in the book of Revelation, in the letters to the churches, Jesus speaks there about those who will be overcomers, the ones who overcome. And that's what this book really deals with. The first chapter we're going to see, Joshua 
and his divine commission. Chapters 2 through 4, we introduced to Rahab, the spies, the crossing of the Jordan. The two sets of stones, we'll look at that in just a moment. Chapters 5 through 6, we see the spiritual preparation as they get ready. We also see this strange encounter with the captain of the Lord's host. And then the conquest of Jericho itself. And the Jubilee year and those things are contained there. And in chapter 7 and 8, we see a defeat. So everything's going so well for Joshua. And then suddenly there's this defeat at this place called Ai, or Ai, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And we see the problem of sin in the camp. But then that leads on to victory. Chapters 9 through 10, we find a covenant with one of the inhabitants of the land, the Gibeonites. And that then leads on to a battle at Beth Horon. We'll look at that in detail. And there's a strange thing, the long day of Joshua. Many people look at this and they dismiss it. Couldn't have happened. Not scientifically possible, they tell us. Well, we'll discuss that briefly. We'll look at the end of the tail end of the, the southern conquest. we see how Joshua um, set about tactically to do this. Obviously led of the Spirit of God. 11 through 12, we see then the campaign to deal with the northern tribes in the, the land of Israel. And Joshua's military strategy, which has been studied by secular military generals down through the ages. And then really to close out the book from chapter 13 through to 24, we see the division of the land among the 12 tribes. So that's what we've got in store. Before we get into that though, I just want to highlight some models that we see. We've talked before about the fact that the Bible is replete with these models. And all these things are there again to instruct us and to give us greater understanding. There's an incredible parallel between the book of Joshua and the book of Ephesians. Actually, this works with a number of books. Deuteronomy is very much parallel with the book of Acts. Leviticus with the book of Hebrews. But what Ephesians explains doctrinally, Joshua illustrates practically. Looking at some comparisons between the two, Joshua deals with Israel entering and possessing the land. Of course, Ephesians really is dealing with the church entering and possessing our inheritance. Of course, in Joshua it's an earthly inheritance, but in Ephesians, a heavenly inheritance. In Joshua, it's a fulfilment of the promise given to Abraham. In Ephesians, we're seeing that which was given to Christ, and then Christ blesses and gives this inheritance to the church. Looking at another group of parallels you can see, in Joshua and Ephesians, we have a predestined inheritance of a chosen people. In both books, again, we have a way opened by a divinely appointed leader whose name is the Lord is my salvation. Joshua's name, if we were to put that into the Greek, it would be Jesus. Yeshua, it's the same name. Both accounts we see a gift of grace. Israel hadn't earned this land. It wasn't something that they were entitled to because of something they'd done. It was purely on the basis of faith that they went in and conquered a land that by rights they should never have been able to do. They weren't strong enough. They weren't able to take on those in the land. And yet God gives them the victory. And we see again this sphere of striking revelation. That all the people of the earth might know. You know, Israel were to be a witness to the world. And of course the church we know also should be a witness to the world. And again, in both of these situations, Joshua is a scene of very real physical conflict. But Ephesians tells us that we are also in a very real spiritual conflict. So we have these uh, very interesting parallels. Straight at the start, I'd also recommend, if you want to do a, a further study... 
Alan Redpath's book, Victorious Christian Living, very much is a study on the book of Joshua and then obviously paralleling it with the things we see in Ephesians. A wonderful book. But there's another parallel we see with the book of Joshua and the book of Revelation. In Joshua, we see Joshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. Do you remember, we've talked already that Satan was trying to get rid of Israel. Why? Because God had promised that the seed of the woman would come down through Abraham's descendants, that the saviour was going to be of that line. And Satan wanted to stop that at all costs. So we have these giant tribes possessing the land. But in Revelation, we also find another Yeshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. In Joshua, we find we have ten nations. Three fall before they cross the Jordan, leaving just seven. In Revelation, we're told that there's ten kings. Ten nations, if you like. Three fall, leaving seven. But it goes on. Joshua sends in two spies. But actually, they don't really bring back any intelligence as such. What they do is get somebody saved. They're two witnesses, you could argue. And of course, in Revelation, we find that Jesus will send in two witnesses to testify. We find in Joshua, it's the commander of the army of the Lord that fights the battle. Certainly uh, the situation with Jericho, also the battle of Beth Horon and so on. And of course in Revelation, it's Jesus at the second coming that fights the battle. Those that come back with him are not involved in the fighting, we just follow. In Joshua, we have seven trumpets blown. In Revelation, there's seven trumpets blown. In Joshua, we have this Adonai Zedek. The name means the Lord of Righteousness. He sets himself up as King of Jerusalem. And of course, in Revelation, we have somebody we're familiar with the name anyway, Antichrist. He sets himself up as the Lord of Righteousness, in a sense, the King of Jerusalem. And Joshua, at this battle, as I mentioned, of Beth Horon, there's signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, exactly the same in the book of Revelation. In the book of Joshua, the people hide themselves in caves to flee from the wrath of God. In Revelation, exactly the same thing happens. And then finally, the book ends with a covenant with God who delivers Israel. The book of Revelation also ends with a covenant with God and those who've been delivered by him. So it's an incredible design that we see, written you know, thousands of years apart, well certainly 1,400, 1,500 years apart, these two books. And yet, incredible design beyond something that had been manufactured by man. The theme really is the crossing over the Jordan, um, and so often this is used as an idiom of death. You know, you cross over the Jordan as this kind of like passing into the promised land, and promised land, Jordan, and, and uh, Israel being a type of heaven. But of course, there's continual battles that have been fought in the land of Canaan. That's not my idea of heaven. I don't know about yours. And it's not really given to us as this kind of like the Jordan is that place we cross over into our eternal rest. But actually it deals with the the struggle. It's really not about life after death, but life after birth. You see, once we're born again, we will, as believers, struggle. There will be temptations. There will be challenges. You see, God's goal is not just deliverance from Egypt, but to the promised land. That we would live in the promised land. That we would be overcomers there. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 talks about entering into his rest. But it's not something we get to straight away. Ephesians deals with the fact that we're seated in the heavenlies. But again, we're not there yet in terms of physically. We're not in heaven yet. But we're to get ready. We're to live our lives by the power of God's Spirit as overcomers right now, right here. 
Romans 8.30 reminds us that we've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified and glorified. Of course, it's of God's choice to predestine us. He called us. He's justified us by Christ's death on the cross. And it's his work in our life of sanctification. And that really is what this is all about. The book of Joshua is dealing with that particular section. As Israel had been called, they've been predestined, they've been delivered from Egypt, they've been justified in that sense. If you remember when Balaam was pronouncing those curses on Israel and Balak gets very cross, and the response that Balaam gives is, I find no sin in them, there's no iniquity in them. As God looks at them, he doesn't see their iniquity, knowing that it's all been paid for by the shed blood of lambs, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice. From a a mystical point of view, of course, Joshua is a type of Jesus Christ, not just in terms of name. That's one of the very obvious ones. Um, But Joshua was a prophet who foretold God's plan. He was a priest in a sense because he followed on as Moses ministered to the people. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi, um, but he acted very much in that type of capacity. He was also, although he wasn't the king of the nation, again he has this kind of role. He's commander of the host of Israel. So he has this kind of role of prophet, priest and king. He came after Moses as well. And of course Moses represents the law, but what the law could not do, grace did. And through Joshua, through faith, people enter the land. And he leads them to victory, just as Jesus leads us to victory. Interestingly, Joshua becomes an advocate for the people after they've suffered defeat. And we're told, of course, in First John chapter 2, that we have an advocate with the Father as well. And Joshua is the one who allotted their inheritance, and so Jesus is the one who allots our inheritance. So, just some things to get you thinking, to see that this is just such an incredible landscape that we're surveying here as we go through. So let's jump straight into chapter 1, and we read, Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Notice it's God who gives the land to them. This is God's land. It's his choice. He's giving them this land. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Again, God has given them this land. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. You know, We've been given the Holy Spirit. Just as God allowed Jesus to walk and live the life he lived, we've been given the same Spirit that we may live a life that is glorifying to God. Just as this kind of the parallel, as the Holy Spirit was with Jesus, so the Holy Spirit has been given to us. God saying, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And this great declaration, be strong and of good courage implies that maybe he wasn't strong and maybe he didn't have the courage but God says be strong and of good courage for unto this people shall thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give to them only be thou strong and very courageous that thou may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whither thou ever thou goest this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth 
but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And of course, this, read it as an instruction manual for us. See the parallels that we're looking at here. God's word needs to be in our mouths. We should meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shall thou make thy way prosperous. Just brings a Psalm 1, doesn't it? You know, talking about having a blessed life. Being so absorbed in the things of God. Then shall be prosperous and uh, then thou shall have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. What a great promise. Notice that we have these for thens and then. So, you know. Obey God's word. Follow God's word. For then you shall be prosperous and then you'll have good success. It's conditional. If we want a a blessed life here and now, we can have it. But it's about obedience. It's about following the Lord. Again, the question, why this exhortation to Joshua? You've got to remember who Joshua was going in to face. Joshua was going to face a very real enemy the giant tribes in the land we talked about it we looked at it previously it was a very formidable task but it's no different than you and i face as we are wrestling not with flesh and blood but with the principalities and powers we need to be always aware that there is a spiritual battle going on trying to pull us away from the things of god it's amazing how you'll find if you go to put time aside to sit down and to pray or to read your bible there's always a distraction something will try and pull you away Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess it. So God, as we've seen already, has promised them the land. Again, every place that they put their foot, the victory was already theirs. They just now have to take it by faith. That's the same for us in our walking with the Lord. The things that maybe we struggle with, the victory's already been granted us, but we have to claim it by faith. We're going to see that they come to this place, Gilgal. This is the, the crossing point uh, that we're going to see in a moment. Romans 8.31 tells us, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Clearly that's the, the mindset that Joshua has as he gets ready and starts to talk to the people about this incredible, quite daunting task that lay before them. Moving to chapter 2. Read Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Why two? Well, two we've already seen. It's a number of witnesses and so on. But maybe Joshua was thinking back to 38 years prior to this. When actually... There had been 12 people that had gone in, but only two had come back with a good report. Maybe he specifically selected two that he knew loved God that would come back with a good report. What would have happened if he had sent a delegation of 12 and they'd have come back and said, you really don't want to go there? Well, maybe that's partly what Joshua was thinking. Two faithful men is much better than a multitude. And as I said, two also is the number of witness. And these two witnesses give testimony so any years that we're here, I say the parallel we see with Revelation is quite striking. 
And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came many hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. The king clearly is very anxious about this. Now, five miles away from Jericho was where the Israeli camp was in Gilgal. And remember, there was this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that had led Israel. As yet, it hadn't been taken away. No doubt, clearly visible. As the king is looking out, he would see that Israel was coming. And more importantly, the God of Israel was coming. Just down the road from them, as it were, was Sodom and Gomorrah, located in the south of Jericho in the plains of the Dead Sea. No doubt the king of Jericho would have known of the results of God's judgment. That account would have reverberated down through history. If you look on the map, you've got Jericho at the top here, and then you've got Sodom and Gomorrah just at the other end of the Dead Sea. We're told in Joshua 2 verse 6, But she had brought them up to the roof of her house, and it hid them with stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. It's interesting, um, some commentators make a big thing of this, but the stalks of flax imply that she was getting into another trade. Maybe she was already realising that her lifestyle wasn't right, because she's already drying out these, these flax and things that provide, it implies manual labour and work and so on, for which obviously the purpose of that would be to sell and to make money. So uh, maybe there was more going on. We are though told in Hebrews 11 of Rahab. She makes the hall of faith as it were. We're told, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believe not, when she had received the spies with peace. So as they arrive, she's got this faith in her heart. She wants to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In James we're told, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she'd received the messengers and had seen them, uh, sorry, sent them out another way. James makes the point that our faith is visible because of our works. You know, if you have faith and do nothing, is it really faith? We see, if you look at the genealogy, uh, coming down from Abraham all the way down, Rahab ends up marrying Salmon. Their child is Boaz. And so Rahab becomes part of this line that comes all the way down to David and then through Solomon, all the way down through the kings of Israel, eventually to Joseph. And this is the genealogy we're given in in Matthew. Joseph is adopted then as the son of Heli. And of course we see this line coming all the way down to Jesus Christ. So Rahab becomes part of this royal line, if you like. A Gentile grafted in. She was a sinner, just like you and I. She wasn't part of the covenants and promises, but she was justified by faith. Because her faith was accompanied by works. As I say, she becomes a Gentile bride and is joined to the commonwealth of Israel. Rahab is very much a type of you and I. So we read, So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. That must have given them some encouragement. As they come back with this report, again, just think, you know, 38 years ago, that's the report they should have been getting. But now they come back, these men, that hear that everybody is terrified because the God of Israel is coming. 
chapter 3 of Joshua, Joshua now instructs the people on how they are to cross the Jordan. The ark is to go before them, which represents, of course, the law, the word of God. That's to go before them. The people are told not to sharpen their swords or prepare for battle, but simply to sanctify themselves. Of course, we're told in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man. Joshua 3, 4, we're reminded that you've not passed this way before. You don't know where you're going. You know, for you and I, we don't know where we're going in this life. We don't know what this coming week will hold for us. That's why we need to let the Lord guide us and lead us. We need to keep the word forever before us, just as they were told to do here. Psalm 119, verse 105, very special scripture to many of us. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what God's word is. We need to use it in such a way. So Joshua 3 verse 12. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the water of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above. They shall stand up on a heap. Notice when the waters are going to be cut off? When your feet get wet. There's a great line in a song by a Christian band called Petra. Just say, waters never part until our feet get wet. And so often that's the way it is. You know, we have to take that step of faith. But God will never, ever abandon us or leave us. You know, imagine the priests getting down and getting a little bit closer to the edge. And the ones that are behind kind of saying, come on, go off you go. You know, pushing the front one a bit further forward and, you know, starting to get a little bit wet. And probably, I don't know, we're not told the exact detail, but I'm guessing it's not until all of the priests were in the water that suddenly the water stopped flowing and dried up. And we're told, verse 14, It came to pass, when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, as they that bear the ark were come unto the Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bore the ark were dipped in the brim of the water. It says priests again, as all of them I'm assuming here are in the water at this point. And then we're told, for Jordan overflows all his banks all the time of harvest. This is incredible. Two months earlier, or two months later, they could have just waded across the Jordan. This is the point, it's in full flood. It's the worst it possibly could be. The widest the water would be at any time during the year. Why does God do things like that? It's the worst possible time to cross. Well, there's a very simple reason, and we're told in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen, yes, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Israel couldn't take the credit on the glory for this. This was just all God's doing. And sometimes God will put us in a predicament. And we think, Lord, why is it like this? Well, it's so that he'll get the glory, not us. Again, they were to keep their eyes on the ark, not to be distracted by the floods or Jericho. You know, we mustn't get distracted by the battle that rages around us, by the things that are going on around our lives. We keep our eyes on the ark, symbolic, of course, of Christ, representing the word of God. As the ark went down into the depths to secure their passage, so Jesus has secured a way through death. The water, we find also, was removed back to a place called Adam. Interesting enough, that's where the water stopped flowing, a town called Adam. The water was removed back to Adam, and so our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. The ark remained in the depths until all was safely across. 
And Jesus, of course, has safely carried us. Not one has been lost of all that the Father had given him, Jesus said. But just as the ark went down into the Jordan, so did the people. This quote from Alan Redpath, he says, There at Calvary, Jesus died. There he stood firm until everything that God the Father had commanded God the Son to say to his people was finished. But there is something more than that. The deepest, most real, and most wonderful meaning of Calvary is that not only did Jesus die there for my sins, but I died with him and in him. Without a real spiritual revelation to your heart of this, you will never be a victorious Christian. Now, I imagine that many of you have visions of some great project that you are going to do for God. But you're always planning a scheme and thinking out a method by which you can win souls for Jesus. Very good. But it is only second best. God's best for you is to die. He is nothing for any of us outside of Christ except judgment and death. It must be Jesus only. The thing that God is calling some people to do, people who want to do big things for him, is to die with Jesus. I love that quote. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In that context, you see why it's so precious. Because we have to come to the end of ourselves. Galatians 2.20 reminds us that we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oswald Chambers says this, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. It is going to cost the natural in you everything, not something. Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, i.e. his right to himself. And a man has to realise who Jesus Christ is before he'll do it. Beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. Moving to Joshua chapter 4. We read there, it came to pass when all the people had crossed over. And what we find they do now is they take 12 stones. And they're going to carry them over with them. They leave them um, in the lodging place and so on. So these 12 stones are picked up. And what we find is, as we move into verse 9, Joshua set up the 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. So one stone representing each of the tribes of the nation. They pick them up and they go and put them in the river Jordan as they're carrying these things across. We also told they're there to this day. This is very interesting. Again, this place Gilgal. Also, believed by many commentators to be the same place as Beth Bara, which means the house of passage, interestingly enough. In John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 28, we just have this comment These things were done in Beth Bara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is where John was baptizing. Matthew 3, verse 9, John the Baptist says, Think. Not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. I don't believe John the Baptist is looking around at just random stones. I think he's referring to the very stones that he knew, that the Jews would have known, had been left there, put into the Jordan River, symbolizing that death in a sense to the old life. And notice what he says, God is able to raise up of these stones. Those who are prepared to die to themselves, children unto Abraham. 
when he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean these stones? What's the purpose of this? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. You know, the Lord allows us these memorial stones, as it were, these things in our life. I, I think it's fascinating here because what we're seeing is an evidence, evidence of faith. faith. As the, Joshua is telling the people, here, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You point to it and you remind them of something that actually happened, a real historical event, that God, just as he led them across the Red Sea, led your fathers across the Jordan also. Israel were to be a witness to the nations. And of course it's a really important point because we understand then partly why the punishment upon them for their disobedience because they were to be representatives of the God who created all things. An incredible task had been entrusted to them. But this was to be their role. But for us, you know, it's exactly the same. We have a very real historical event that when our children say to us, why do you do this? Well, we can tell them, because in Jerusalem there's an empty tomb. There's a historical event that is the bedrock and the foundation of Christianity. So many people have set about trying to investigate and prove wrong the fact of the resurrection. So many that have made that journey have come to the realisation that the resurrection was a real historical event. Christianity started with a real historical event. Of all the religious leaders, of all the religions in the world, of all the philosophies, all those leaders, all those philosophers, they've died. They have tombs. Places sometimes of pilgrimage. There's no tomb for the founder of our religion. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Paul makes the point in Corinthians that if he didn't rise, we might as well pack up and go home. Then we're, of all men, most miserable, he says. The resurrection is the basis of our faith, the basis of our Christian life. And just as Israel would look back at this historical event, what God did for them, bringing them through the waters into this new life in this new land, also Jesus has done for us. In chapter 5, we find that all the kings, the Amorites, the Canaanites and so on, they heard of these things, their heart melted, we're told. Verse 2 of Joshua 5 just says there, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make these sharp knives. Now, you're thinking possibly getting ready for battle. And he says, And and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. This is an incredible situation. They're getting ready to go into battle. And you and I will be thinking about getting our weapons ready, getting all the things that we need, and God says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. The first time they've been circumcised was when they left Egypt. And you, you think they need to be on top physical form at this point. I love the quote, I'm not sure who said it, but God's delays are infinitely more profitable than our haste. You see, there was something else far more important going on here. Again, Alan Redpath says this, The rite of circumcision was an outward testimony to the fact that the land was to be possessed in the weakness of the flesh, through suffering very often of the body. 
It symbolised the weakness and almost death, as it were, of everything that man can be, in order that the possession of the land should be given to them, unmistakably in the sovereign grace of God. We're told, the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, even in the plains of Jericho. Just imagine, they're looking out, the scouts from Jericho, they're looking down, and somebody's going, or the king maybe of Jericho, what's going on, what's happening, what are they doing? Uh, They're having a meal. They're just sitting around, they seem to be enjoying themselves. Psalm 23.5 says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anoints my head with oil, my cup runs over. The Passover had been ordained, of course, in Egypt. That was the the night they left. It was a memorial of their deliverance and slavery from bondage. But it had been celebrated at the foot of Mount Sinai, but then not again for 38 years. Not from that point. During any of the wilderness wanderings did they celebrate the Passover. And neither had they been been circumcised during that time. Exodus 12.48 makes it very clear that no uncircumcised person could eat of the Passover. They were to have this time of fellowship with God, remembering the God who delivered them. But they had to be set aside. They had to cut away the flesh life, as it were, before they could be in the right place. Another quote from Alan Redpath, he says, Let me say to you with all earnestness of my heart, that there can never be any feasting on the Lord in your heart, any real worship of God, if there is disobedience to God in your life. If sometimes Sunday worship means little to you, and sometimes you never get anything out of your Bible, ask yourself if this is not because you have forfeited your right to blessing. But immediately the right of circumcision was renewed, they kept the Passover. The moment they obeyed, heaven opened, and they feasted in fellowship with God. came to pass, verse 13 of Joshua 5, When Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. We're not given any other detail of this encounter, but this is no angel. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the captain of the hosts of the Lord. The one who comes to assist, to fight, as it were, in the day of battle. Chapter 6, we of course have the fall of Jericho. And you're probably familiar with the account. I'm sure you've read it. Hopefully you'll be reading as we're going through this year anyway, through the Bible. And they're sent out for six days. They march around the walls. Again, imagine the conversation. What are they doing? They're coming, they're coming. And they start to march around. Now what? They're going back again. And the second day, they come out and they march around the walls silently. And then they go back again. And the people in Jericho are thinking... Are they stupid? What are they doing? But then eventually, on the seventh day, they march around the wall seven times. 
And then as the command is given, the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass, when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout, the walls fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, with ass, and ass with the edge of the sword. Again, we've said already why these inhabitants of the land had to be destroyed and wiped out. Interestingly, that's what uh, archaeologists now have uh, concluded the wall looked like. And you understand that if they'd have just pushed the walls over, it wouldn't have helped them all that much. Certainly, this first part here, pushing that over wouldn't have really helped them. In fact, for a start, it would have been very hard to push it over. But even if they had, they'd have then had all the rubble to try and get over as well. And it appears to be this double um, banked wall uh, arrangement. There's a lady, uh, Kathleen Kenyon. Now, she actually tried to disprove the event, but she concealed a lot of the evidence that she'd found until after her death. And a lot of these things were then found that she'd actually discovered. She tried to date it at a different date, which put it into a different time frame, which meant it couldn't have been Joshua that was responsible for the destruction. But this is one of the things that her report said. The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. And since her trying to deny it, a number of other archaeologists have come back to the uh, conclusion that these events did take place. This was a very real historical event, and it happened in exactly the way Scripture describes it. So the Lord was with Joshua, And his fame was noised throughout all the country. Imagine a city like Jericho falling. And you and I, in our lives, we have sometimes cities that we've got to bring down by faith, by trusting Jesus Christ, by trusting the work of his Holy Spirit in us, by not relying on what we think we know. You know, our emotions and our feelings can sometimes be very deceptive. And sometimes we have these kind of battles and you have an obstacle, you think, how can I overcome that? Some sort of temptation, some sort of problem. Some, some, sometimes it can be an addiction or a lust or whatever. It can only be overcome by faith. But the God that led Joshua and the children of Israel to overcome Jericho is the same God that we serve. The same yesterday, today and forever. Chapter 7, we get to the defeats at Ai. They send out, just Joshua without consulting God just sends off a, a small group of men. Don't need to worry too much. It's only a small little city. And they're defeated. 36 men die. Joshua falls on his knees before the Lord. Why, Lord? And we find out that this man called Achan had taken a Babylonian garment from Jericho. They were told not to touch anything. But the lust of the eyes had got him. And he takes his garment, he hides it under his tent. Eventually they discover. And then Joshua does what he should have done at the start. He falls before the Lord and he asks God what to do. You know, sometimes we do just jump in without consulting God and we end up with problems. We've got to learn, even if it looks like an easy problem. One of the great examples of this is in Second Chronicles chapter 14 through 16. Incredible account of a king of Israel who's in a desperate situation, asks God for help. A little bit later, another problem, not as big, don't need to ask God, we'll ask the Syrians. And he ends up so many problems as a result. We need to remember that whatever the problem lay before us, we still need God to go with us, to be on our side. We don't need to go out on our own. Chapter 8, we move straight into it. 
And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee. Arise and go up to Ai. So this is now, after God has said, Now go. Take all the people. I've given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Again, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. But that's only possible if we're walking with the Lord. God kind of takes Joshua as it were back to basics. Your life in the land is to be a life of continual trusting in God. Our Christian life has to be the same. 2 Corinthians 5 7 tells us there, For we walk by faith, not sight. Don't judge something on what it appears like to the natural eye. See, Joshua now is to take all the army to learn the lessons, not to trivialize the battle. Our smallest foes can inflict the greatest harm on us. And it's that little sin that doesn't matter that can cripple a soldier of God. Chuck Mills has often said that we always fail in our strongest suit. Peter, remember, draws his sword and then he denies Jesus before a, a girl in the courtyard. He's ready to take on 600 plus armed guards and soldiers. And then he capitulates to a, a young girl that asks him a question. Samson trusted in his own strength and so on many examples we could look at in scripture but then in chapter 8 we get to the thing we looked at in Deuteronomy that Joshua then builds an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal verse 32 tells us he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel so they get then to these mountains this is the, the signing of the covenant if you remember we're looking in Deuteronomy 27. It shall be on that day when you pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, that thou shalt set up great stones and plaster them with plaster, and thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law. So Joshua now doing what Moses had commanded to do. We said previously that this uh, agreement had been established. The requirements and expectations had been set out. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 5 through 26. Both parties knew their obligations, if you remember from last time. They had vouched to walk in God's ways and keep his statutes. God had vouched to provide, protect and lift up the nation. The contract had been verbally agreed in 27, Deuteronomy 27, and now it's being written down, as it were, for everybody to see. Deuteronomy 28, we saw also, gives them the penalties for the breach of that covenant. And as we said previously, they come to this place. We have this fruitful mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the blessings of the law were to be pronounced, and then the curses would be pronounced on Mount Ebal. There is still the remains this day of an altar uh, on Ebal. There was um, an archaeology professor from the University of Haifa who was doing a survey there. He wasn't a believer, but because of what he found there, he became a Bible believer because of what the detail, or the detail that's given in the Bible. And uh, you can still see the remains of it. It's uh, believed that the actual altar at the time would have looked something like this, with the main circular altar uh, in that area there. Uh, some additional building in subsequent years. Um, but the main altar built on bedrock. Interestingly enough, there's an identical altar that was found at Gilgal. Also found at this particular site was a scarab. Not a, a kind of a carved one, not a real one, obviously. Um, dating, obviously, to the, to the Egyptian time, which is another little piece of evidence that just corroborates the whole biblical account here that the children of Israel had left Egypt. No doubt some of these things had stayed with them uh, and ended up being left at this particular site. Okay. Chapter 9 of Joshua. 
J. Vernon McGee says this, As Joshua began the conquest of the promised land, he faced three formidable enemies, Jericho, Ai, and the Gibeonites. These three enemies of Joshua represent the enemies of the Christian today. Jericho represents the world, Ai represents the flesh, and the Gibeonites represent the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. You'll recall that Joshua's strategy was to first take Jericho, located right in the centre of the land, then to take Ai, which stood north, uh, northeast of Jericho, and to the south was an, uh, an alliance of Gibeonites. As you recall, Jericho represents the world. How do you overcome the world? By faith. Ai represents the flesh. How do you overcome the flesh? Not by fighting it, but by recognising your weakness, confessing to God, and letting the Spirit of God get the victory. Remember that it was God who said, I am going to give you I. Now we have the third enemy, the Gibeonites, who represent for us the devil. Since Ephesians in the New Testament corresponds to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, we find an important parallel here. In Ephesians we read in chapter 6, that we are to be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, that we are to put on the whole armour of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Move on. And they went to Joshua and to the camp. Gilgal said to him and to the men of Israel, We become from a far country. These are the Gibeonites. They come now. Oh, we've come from a long way away, they say. And without consulting God, the nation makes a covenant with these people. They ask the question, What, about, what happens if you dwell among us, though? They, kind of, they smell a rat, but they still don't go and consult God. And they tell him that we're from a far country. Thy servants are come. Because of the name of the Lord. The conclusion, of course, here is that they end up making agreement. We're told in verse 14 that they ask not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Well, there's your problem. See, Israel's judgment was based upon sight and their own opinion. In Deuteronomy, there'd been a law already given that saying, Thus thou shalt do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee. So a provision had already been made, and are not cities of these nations, but the cities of these people which the Lord thy God does give thee for inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathes. So God had already said about there'll be nations from afar. They mistake this situation for just that. It came to pass at the end of three days, after they made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbours, and that they dwelt among them. See, if only they'd have just waited. If only we'd have held back from making a covenant with the wiles of the devil. You know, how many times in our life have we jumped into something, suddenly to find, actually, if we'd have waited? See, the devil is very crafty. The devil will always make something appear so tangible, so simple, so inoffensive. You see, we live in the moment. We're often finding ourselves in a hurry. The world lives in such a hurry. But God inhabits eternity. God is not in a hurry. We need to learn to wait on him. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Interestingly, in Second Samuel, we find this brought up again, this covenant, um, even to that time, this covenant that had been made with the Gibeonites stands. See, if God honours a covenant made with the Gibeonites, how much more will he keep his covenants with Israel? And with those who are sealed by the blood of his son. Yet we do praise God that he's a covenant keeping God. The 
princes said to them, the princes of Israel, the leaders, let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregations the princes had promised them. See, there's some lessons that we can learn from the situation. Yeah, we might have been deceived by the wiles of the devil. In fact, if we're honest, we had a show of hands, we probably all admit at times that's exactly what's happened in our own lives. But we can turn it to be a servant. The Gibeonites brought wood that would be used to offer worship on the altar. They brought water that would be used for cleansing. We must turn our failures into opportunities to grow. First Chronicles 12.4 is a reference you can look at. But we find there that uh, Ismael, the Gibeonite, becomes part of the, 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 the team of David's men, a mighty man among the 30, we're told. The Gibeonites also appear in Nehemiah 7 verse 3 as uh, they repair the walls of Jerusalem when they've returned after exile. Learn from the, the mistakes, I think is the lesson there. So chapter 10, we get to this incredible scene. It's kind of the battle for the heart of the land of Canaan. And typologically, it speaks of the battle for our own hearts. In Canaan, there was a self-appointed king with his own righteousness. The king in the land was opposed to the moving of God's spirit. We read, now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, it was one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I. And all the men of the city were mighty. Again, just to mention, it's Adonai Zedek. The name means the Lord of Righteousness. This title, seemingly, he gives himself. <laughs> Although the men were mighty, of course, the Lord has brought to nothing the mighty. We read on, Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of uh, these places. So we get a, an alliance, a confederacy, that come together now. They're concerned because Gibeon have made this alliance with Israel. So they say, verse 4, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. You know, you and I possibly would say, well, we'll just leave the Gibeonites now and they'll get wiped out and then the fact that we made a covenant with them is kind of swept under the carpet. It's not a problem. Nobody will know. No, that's not what God says. Because this covenant had been made with the Gibeonites. And so Israel now, these five kings of the Amorites and this whole host, the men of Gibeon uh, send to Joshua to the camp. There's a great lesson in that for us, actually. They send unto Joshua. You know, what should we do when we're under siege? Well, quite clearly, we appeal to our Yeshua. And the Gibeonites did this. They'd made a covenant and God, as we've already said, keeps his covenants. So God instructs Joshua and the nation to go and deliver the Gibeonites. So Joshua, we're told, ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and he went up from Gilgal all night. You read that, I read that, and we don't think too much of it until you start looking at the geography of all of these things. Notice it says Joshua ascended. That's because there's a very steep climb to where they were heading. It's about a 26 mile journey, journey from Gilgal to Gibeon, where the Gibeonites were under siege by these other nations. Journey would have typically taken a normal army about three days. They march double quick time, or triple quick actually, and they get there in about 12 hours. Uphill, 
4,000 foot ascent. I'm not sure that they'd be particularly ready to fight a battle after that. But nevertheless, they're obedient. They do what God calls them to do. God has already said that the enemy would be delivered. And they read, and the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goes up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azkem and to Machedah. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto uh, Azekah and they died. And there were more which died with hailstones than they with whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spoke Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, we can go off on a very interesting tangent here and talk about some of the things that may well have occurred to bring this situation to pass. But nevertheless, God gives them victory. Uh, For those that are able to come on Thursday, we'll go through and looking at some of the conjecture as to how these things happen. Because people say, how could the, the sun stand still? How could the day be lengthened and all these kind of things? Well, there's some very good, serious study that's been done. There's some very compelling arguments um, to support that which you read. Of course, we don't need those things to prove the Bible. We trust the Bible because we know the God who's the author of it. But on Thursday, we will have a look and review some of those things anyway. So God gives Israel this incredible victory. So we find they cross over the, at, uh, the, Ritz, over the, the Jordan. Uh, the first they deal with Jericho, then they come down, they deal with the south, and so on, and then from there they go up and they deal with the north of the land. Again, dispossessing the inhabitants of the land. And then we told Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. It's interesting that they return. Great rejoicing, no doubt, as they've got to this point in their journey. They're returning home. They would see, no doubt, as they get back, the pile of stones reminding them of the God who brought their deliverance and brought them into this land. That's why we have the communion as well. We have a continual reminder of the deliverance from our slavery, from our bondage. God's covenant with them was eternal, as we've seen. And all these kings and the land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. In chapter 11... We read there, At that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. And of course we're going to come across some of those giants that remained when we get into the books of Samuel and so on. And we'll meet the most famous of all, which is Goliath, who obviously ended up forming an alliance with the Philistines uh, and dwelling amongst them. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And the land rested from war. 
from chapter 14, verse 7, we actually find the campaign lasted for seven years. It's interesting because of another parallel with Revelation, a seven-year campaign, as it were. Well, chapters 12 through to 21 just deal with the division of the land. It's a land that's divided by lots. It's the Lord that chooses their inheritance. You know, Abraham was willing to let God choose. He said to Lot, this is confusing because we've got two lots of Lot, if you hear what I'm saying here. Um, so Lot, his nephew, went and chose the portion of land that he wanted. Abraham was content to let God choose where Abraham would go. But we frequently want to choose our own Lot. Or complain about the Lot that we've been given. So frequently the case, isn't it? But we should allow Lord, the Lord to choose for us. We read in Joshua 13, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, have a rest. Put your feet up. No, he said, thou art old and stricken in years and there remains yet very much land to be possessed. Was it time to retire? No. There was still much to do. Alan Redpath makes this comment. He says, the greatest battles are fought just before the war is won. You know, and in our journey through life, it may well be that in our latter years, those struggles don't disappear. They may even intensify as we get closer and closer to the finish line. The tribe of Reuben are allotted this portion of land, near the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. They choose to take this side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan. Children of Gad opt for this piece of land again, not wanting to cross over, but it's all still part of the territory that the Lord had promised the nation. And then Manasseh has this split. They have this portion, but they also have this portion. The half-tribe of Manasseh takes some of that area over there. <clears throat> we read Joshua thirteen thirty-two. These are the countries which Moses did distribute for an inheritance in the plains of Moab, on the other side of Jordan by Jericho eastward. But unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he said unto them. So the Levites don't get any actual land uh, for themselves. Judah have this large section here, and Simeon end up getting absorbed into the area that Judah have. Manasseh and Ephraim, then the tribes of Joseph, the uh, sons of Joseph, their tribes have this allotted area. Shiloh, the tabernacle, then becomes situated in Ephraim. We read... Joshua 18, verse 1. The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there and the land was subdued before them. Just need to make a quick point about this. I mean, we're almost done. But notice that they set up the tabernacle and then we say, and the land was subdued. It's interesting that they have this seven years of, of fight and getting rid of the inhabitants. But it's when they set up the tabernacle, the dwelling of God amongst them, as it were, John 14, we read, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. They have the tabernacle representing the dwelling of God in their midst. We have the Holy Spirit. Not just representing, but really the living God within us, in our lives. Shiloh, this place becomes the permanent home, the first permanent home of the tabernacle. It's the place where Jephthah's daughter served. We'll look at that when we get to Judges next week. It's the place where Eli ministered during the times of the Judges in 1 Samuel. 
It's the place of Hannah's pilgrimage. And it's the place where Samuel served. It's a very significant place in many respects. But it also is the place that the ark was captured from by the Philistines. And the ark is removed from the nation. Shiloh then declines in importance and eventually is left in ruins. In the book of Jeremiah, God says there, But go you now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. The difference, of course, was the word had been removed. When the ark was taken out, and we'll look at this when we get to Samuel, the word of God was removed, in essence, from their midst. And when the word of God is removed, well, there's nothing of substance left. Many churches experience that today. Many churches are in a position where the word of God has been taken out. What's happened to them? They've become totally ineffective. The tribe of Benjamin have this area, just above Judah. Zebulun, you can see there, northern Israel. Issachar, bordering onto them. Uh, and just, just touching almost the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. We then have the tribe of Asher uh, on the sea coast, on the Mediterranean. And then Naphtali have this area which borders the, the Sea of Galilee uh, on the um, left-hand side of the Sea of Galilee there. Dan, very interesting. They're allotted this portion of land down the bottom. But notice what they say. The coast of the children of Dan went out too little for them. Notice it's for them. Therefore the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and took it and smote it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and dwelt therein and called Leshem Dan after the name of their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families, these cities with their villages. So what Dan does, say that's not enough God, I need a bit more than that. So they end up and they go and take this puny little bit up the top here. Obviously it makes them happy. But there's a real point that we need to mention. In scripture you'll find a quote often from Dan to Beersheba. Well if you were to look at that previous slide, from there, Dan down to Beersheba, which is down the bottom here, it's not a big distance. The reference is right from the north to the south, from the top of Israel to the bottom. So when you read that quote, that's what it's referring to. <clears throat> Under Jeroboam, Dan becomes a centre for idolatry. And there's a real point here that we need to make, and that's when we reject God's borders for our lives, seeking more, we will end up in idolatry. And I've seen it with many people in my own life, when I've, in different church situations, different Christians, who reject the boundaries that God sets. They want more. They feel that it's too restrictive. That, well, it won't hurt if I do that. I can still be a Christian and do this, can't I? You know, when you reject God's borders, wanting a little bit more, you'll end up in idolatry just as Dan did. I think it's a very powerful lesson from that. And so then we read in Joshua 19, When they made an end of dividing the land for inheritance by their coast, the children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua, the son of Nun among them, according to the word of the Lord. They gave him the city which he asked, even Timnath Sarah, in the Mount Ephraim. And he built the city and dwelt there. Interestingly, this name means abundant portion. And Joshua gets this abundant portion. There's more types and shadows that we could look at in that as well. <clears throat> so just to round out the last couple of chapters, the children of Israel, chapter 22, heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar. They hear this rumour that they've built an altar and they assume they're getting into idolatry. Heard say, 
Proverbs 18.13 just reminds us, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame to him. You know, we need to be very careful when we hear something. Hear somebody say something. Because this nearly led to an internal war in the nation. Fortunately, God dealt with them. And the situation was that the reason that this altar had been built was so that they wouldn't forget their God. Because they were on the other side of the river. They didn't want to forget the God who had led them this far. So chapter 23. came to pass after a long time that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all the enemies round about. That Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel and for the elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done unto these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that has fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight, and you shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised unto you. Therefore it shall come to pass that, all, that as all the good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And there's a horrible word here. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Joshua seems to prophetically know, as Moses had said in Deuteronomy, that this was going to happen. When you've transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which has commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given unto you. And though the final chapter, Joshua then gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, brings them back to this place where these blessings and these curses have been pronounced. Joshua says to the people there, gives them instruction, and then speaking as it were from God's perspective, he says, and I've given you a land for which you did not labour, cities which you had not built and dwelt in them, and vineyards and oliveyards which you planted not do you eat. Now therefore fear the Lord, and this is the admonition for us this day, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood. You see, we've passed through the Jordan. We've kind of put those stones in the Jordan. You know, there was 12 stones taken out of the Jordan as well. Our old life is buried, dead. We've started a new life in the land, but it's a life of obedience, serving God. Serve you the Lord, Joshua says to them. And he says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Oh, this is just so applicable for us. The Lord, over the last couple of months, has been reminding us again and again how important obedience is. And God is saying to us right now, as a fellowship of believers, as individuals, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Notice this is always going to be there. Those three times a year that people would come to the sanctuary, they would see 
this little memorial that Joshua sets up. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua, let the people depart every man unto his inheritance. It came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is in Malifraim, on the north side of the hill of Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And then finally, to conclude the book, we read the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob brought of the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. And that brings us to the end of the book. It's a practical message. This book is a book that tells us of a God that keeps his promises and enables his servants to succeed if they will trust him and obey his word. But the real spiritual message, of course, is that God has a rich inheritance for his children right now that you and I can live by faith. But we must choose this day whom we will serve. Next week we'll pick up and we'll look in what happened next bit as we go into the book of Judges. Let's just bow our hearts. Well, once again, Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, how applicable these lessons are to our own lives. Father, just do that work in us, we pray. Just give us a hunger and a thirst for you. Father, may we not follow the gods of the land in which we now dwell. All or the, the gods of the places we've come from. But Lord, may we put all of those things aside. And Lord, may we choose this day whom we're going to serve. And Lord, may we truly be able to say that as for this fellowship of believers, we will serve the Lord. By your grace we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.